the status of the stock market. Lord, I pray that you might bring spiritual awakening through financial difficulties and uncertainties. God, I pray for our own congregation that you would put your hand upon this church, that you would show yourself faithful to those in need. God, I pray for brothers and sisters who are out of work, who are underemployed because of uh, uh, spending being uh, slowed down. We pray, Lord, for builders uh, who need contracts and for uh, families who need to be able to make housing payments. Lord, would you just provide for the people of this church? God, I pray for those who are ill. We just want to continue lifting up Hank and Jet Davies and, and just encourage her, Lord. Be with Rita McLeod and Lori Flanagan and, and Beverly, Lord. Help Marie Watts uh, to regain her vision after her surgery. And Lord, we pray for one of our members, Laniv Savola, who is in Germany on vacation and who is injured there. And God, we just pray you protect her and watch over her as she's far from home. Thank you, God, that you are present everywhere. That the same God we pray to here is there in her presence. We pray, Lord, just encourage her this Sunday where she is. Lord, we pray for our congregation and, and just thank you that you uh, gave us approval for this uh, building project with the Board of Health. And Lord, if you want us to build a facility here, we pray, God, that you would provide everything that's needed. And if not, Lord, lead us in a different direction. I pray regardless, Lord, that you would continue to build us spiritually, that you would build us in our faith and build us in our holiness and love for you. And God, we pray for uh, missionaries who spoke during the Sunday School Hour. Stephen Rita Reed is there getting ready to go to the Philippines. Lord, thank you for the missions conference that's coming up. And we pray that our eyes as a congregation would be refocused on your mission to reach the world. And Lord, we pray you'd help us with our mission here. Lord, we realize that we are missionaries here on the South Shore of Boston. That we live in one of the most unchurched, uh, unevangelized parts of America. And so God, we just pray that you would... um, Make us equipped to preach the gospel here in Boston, that we would see ourselves as your ambassadors to the South Shore and to Boston. Lord, we pray for the other churches here that are preaching the gospel, that you'd encourage them this Sunday. And and Lord, we pray for an awakening of your spirit here on the South Shore of Boston. God, we pray that the tide of the Holy Spirit would rise, that the waters of the Spirit would once again flow into this area. And, And Lord, we're so tired of seeing the boat sitting on the sand. We want to see it float again, Lord. We want to see your Holy Spirit and your gospel fill this area. So, God, send revival and awakening. And I pray that in a few moments, as we open up your word and study your word, that you would revive us and awaken us. We realize, Lord, that revival starts with our own hearts. And so, God, we just pray through your word, you would open our hearts and revive our spirits. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you sing with me? We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Alleluia, Thine glory. Alleluia, Well, we can have the children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, be dismissed to Children's Church, and with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Acts, uh, rather to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two is where we're studying this morning. It's on page eleven eighty-four. Hebrews chapter two, page eleven eighty-four.
This morning we're studying the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. And let me read the text. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. When you step back and look at the whole uh, book of Hebrews, look at the whole scope of it, what you'll find is that the book of Hebrews has a certain rhythm to it. It's a two-beat rhythm. It, it, it goes over and over again like a heartbeat. Bump, 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 bump. And, and the rhythm goes like this in Hebrews. You'll find a section focused on theology, then a section on application. Theology, application. Theology, application. That's the rhythm in Hebrews. So you'll find first a section where the author of Hebrews um, explores in a very theologically rich, Scripture-saturated way. He explores who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He sort of lifts us up to see the glory of Jesus in fresh and different ways. And then in the second beat, in the second section that you'll find, comes the application. And that's where the writer of Hebrews will then say, because of who Jesus is, we need to live a certain way. And he'll directly apply the, the theology to our lives and really challenge us. And that can be very pointed. It can be very direct. But it's a, a call to obedience and a changed life as a result of who Jesus is. So, last two Sundays, we've been in Hebrews chapter 1. That's a theology section. Hebrews chapter 1 was about who Jesus is. It was about the fact that God has spoken, do you remember this, by His Son, that the Son is the ruler, creator, and God of the universe, and that He's superior to the angels. That's what we talked about last Sunday. Well, as we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we now come to, a, to an application beat. And here now, we're going to see what we're supposed to do in response to everything we've been studying about Jesus the last two Sundays. And, and so what is the application of the fact that God has spoken by His Son, who is the ruler, creator, God of the universe, superior to the angels? What does that mean for us? And the answer, the application, is in chapter 2, verse 1, which is our text. Here it is. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. That's the takeaway. We must pay more careful attention, therefore. So notice the therefore. In other words, this is a direct uh, inference from chapter 1. As a result of chapter 1, here's what we have to do. Pay more careful attention to what we have heard. <clears throat> so we have to pay attention. Notice what he says there. Notice how emphatic this is. He says in verse 1, we must, we must pay more careful attention. This is not optional. Okay? It's not just for pastors who get paid to preach on this stuff who have to pay attention. It's not just for seminarians and for uh, seminary professors who their job is to write commentaries and to think deeply about this. This is life and death basic for every Christian. Everyone who wants to follow Christ must pay attention to what we've heard, what God's Word says. We have to focus in on it. And notice the other emphatic thing. He says we must pay more careful attention 
to what we have heard. So that, that Greek word means more abundant. So in other words, whatever level of attention you've been paying to God and His Word and to Jesus, you need to kick it up a notch. That's what he's saying. However much attention you've been paying and however much attention I've been paying to God is actually not enough. And so this is a call to wherever you're at spiritually to pay more attention to what God is saying. See, here's the problem. We're sinful people. All of us have a sin nature. And part of being a sinful person is we have spiritual ADD. All of us. You know, we can focus on a lot of things, but when it comes to listening to God, focusing on His Word, we get distracted and we're all over the place. It's just part of our spiritual nature. It's amazing all the things we can focus on. I can focus on a two and a half hour movie. I can focus on a book. I can read the newspaper. I can try to track what's happening on Wall Street with the bailout thing and listen to it, you know, for hours on talk radio or cable news. I I can focus on uh, all kinds of different things. But suddenly when it comes to opening the Bible, listening to Christ, trying to focus my mind on Christ and things above, the spiritual ADD kicks in. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, all over the place. Uh, Did anyone try to do the homework from last week? Remember I gave you a homework assignment? Yeah, good. Good, good. So uh, the, the homework assignment was I wanted you to go home and try like four or five days during the week to read the Bible. That was the homework assignment. To just read it and to read it with a prayerful posture of saying, God, as I open up your word, please speak to my heart through your word. So it was sort of reading prayerfully to be open to God speaking to us through the word. And, and hopefully some of you in, learned from that. I was talking to a guy between services who was telling me how uh, Christ was just reminding him that he's in charge. And this guy's in the financial industry. And he was saying it was amazing on Monday to be reading in, about God's sovereignty and saying God's in charge. I have to focus on Christ. So when everyone else was freaking out, he was like, well, I, God's been telling me he's in charge. Like, what? <laughs> but he was being spoken to. But you know what's also interesting? For those of you who try to do the homework, maybe you experienced something else. Maybe you experienced how hard it was to do this homework assignment. Why was it so hard to do? Read for 10 minutes a day for four or five days during the week. Read the Bible. That can't be that hard. But for some reason, when it comes to focusing in on God and on His Word, we're all over the place. It's the spiritual ADD that we have. So he's like, you've got to pay more attention. We have to constantly, repeatedly keep focusing our attention. It's like, uh, have you ever had dinner with someone going out to a restaurant? And you sit down in a restaurant and there's a TV there. And you're here, and your friend is there, and the TV's behind you. And you're trying to have a conversation, and your friend keeps talking to you and looking up, looking up. And then you go down, and you, know, you really get to a part where you're pouring out your heart, some things that are really deep that you haven't shared with anybody. And you know, you're eating your food, and, and you look up, and your friend is you know, watching TV, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know. and, and I think that must be how, how it is with God trying to talk to us. He's trying to talk to us, and we're, you know looking away, looking around, constantly distracted by whatever. So we have to pay more careful attention. Notice this also. The condition is so bad that it's put in the plural. It's not just you personally, individual, isolated Christian pay attention. It's, look again, we must pay attention to what we have heard. This is something that we have to do in community. And so when you look in Hebrews you find that when you come to these application beats, it's always in the plural. In other words, this is something that we do as a Christian, 
uh, as a Christian community, as a local church. So look at, for instance, chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just give you a few examples. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, plural, who share in the holy heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. We're doing this together. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also had the Gospel preached to us. It's all plural. This is something we're doing together to keep focusing on Christ. Or the, the uh, classic text that maybe you've heard before. Look at chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. This is one of those oft-quoted passages. Here's another one of these application beats. Chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider together, let's talk about this, let's plan this, let's make a working strategy, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together. Don't stop meeting as a church. Keep meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another in all the more as we see the day approaching. Uh, it's, it's plural. It's a communal effort. Following Jesus is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. And the team that God has pulled together is called a local church. And so God calls Christians from darkness into light. We're called to Christ. But we're not just saved to be personal, individual, private Christians. We're called into community. And so we live out that community together. We're on a team. And part of what we do is we keep encouraging each other to stay, pay attention. Paying attention is so hard, we need each other to do it. It's like if you ever uh, had a long road trip in a car, you're driving along and it's getting late at night and you've got to keep plowing through because of the schedule, but now it's 11 at night and you're starting to get punchy and, and you're you know, doing this while you're driving and, and you're starting to fall asleep and so you're like, oh, this is bad. So you reach over and you wake up your friend in the passenger seat. Hey, wake up. What, what, were we there? No, no, no. Could you just talk to me? Talk to you about what? Anything. It doesn't matter. Talk to me. I, I need you to keep me awake. Oh, Okay. And so you start having a conversation or you turn on the radio and try to find some station and talk about things you're hearing. Anything to stay awake. And I kind of think of church that way. You know, one of the reasons we get together every Sunday, why we, we try to meet together on a regular basis, is so that we can talk about what God's Word is saying. But that's really what the sermon is. That's why uh, churches tend to have a, a good chunk of time, hopefully, devoted to a biblical sermon, so that we're all kind of like talking together about what God is saying to us. We're, we're talking to each other. And that's why we break up into Bible studies during the week to talk to each other. And uh, why we meet friends for coffee to just keep reminding each other of what God is saying. So this is, this is such hard work. It really takes a whole community, which is why we're committed to each other in a local church and are members of a church so that we commit to each other. So going back to Hebrews chapter 2, we must pay, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So let me just ask you, what is it that's distracted you this past week from paying attention to Christ? What's distracted me? I was sort of asking myself that question before the sermon. You know, this is always something. It can change from week to week, day to day, hour to hour, but it's always something. There's always something on that, that TV over God's shoulder that we're being distracted by. And for each person, each person is different. It may have been financial worries about things that are happening in our nation. Maybe it was some other anxiety that kept you up. Maybe you were hurt this week or angry, 
and you found that a lot of your mental energy was spent dealing with resentment that you had. Um, maybe it was sports or entertainment or something you wanted to buy and, and you kept you know, looking at it online and comparing prices and that's what sort of absorbed your heart and your mind today. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we get focused on. It's not always a sinful thing. It can just be a neutral thing. But for some reason, that neutral, normal thing takes on an almost uh, all-encompassing, God-like presence in our hearts, and it becomes an idol. You know, An idol isn't by itself a bad thing. It's just a statue. It's a piece of art. But it takes on an idolatrous size and proportion in our souls as we focus on that thing. Um, I had a lady come up to me after the service. She says, do I get extra points if I know what I was focusing on this week? I said... You know, you know, sure, what the heck, here's extra points, whatever. So uh, she, said, she said, for me, it was my kids. She was uh, so caught up in worrying about my kids, thinking about my kids, trying to fix my kids, trying to guide my kids. And, and you know, she's like, I've taken over the parenting from God. I've taken over control of my kids' life from God, and they've become more important to me than God himself. And so you know, it was just interesting to hear the different things. It can be like anything can take on that focus that that draws us away from Christ. So here's another homework assignment for you and for me as well. If you can identify something that has been pulling your attention away from Christ, the homework assignment is get up and turn off the TV. You know, maybe it literally is the TV. <laughs> or maybe it's metaphorically whatever it is on the channel. But to find those things that take on a disproportionate uh, amount of mental energy that absorb our affections that pull out our financial resources that take up our time and we realize have just sort of drowned out Christ and we have to focus back on him we have to pay more attention to what we've heard so that's the basic application but notice it doesn't stop there he goes on in the next three verses and and basically what the rest of verses two to four do is they give us reasons why we must pay attention. You must pay attention to what we've heard. Why? I mean, if, if I don't, what will happen? And he goes on to say, okay, this is what's going to happen. So he wants to spur us on by warning us, warning us against the disastrous consequences of not paying attention and letting other things distract us from Christ and his word. Even good things, even good gifts can distract us. And, and so there's two things in verses 1 to 4, two things that are negative consequences of being distracted. And the first is in verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. If we get distracted, we will slowly begin to drift. So that's the first consequence, a drifting because of distraction. And I, I think what a wonderful image that is of drifting because that's how it really happens that's how we get away from the lord it's a slow drift it's not a dramatic decision i'm really confident that nobody's going to walk out after this service today and say that was great you know i learned about the lord communion i love the songs but you know i think today i'm just going to punt on the whole christianity thing it's done it's not going to happen i'm confident it's not going to happen But what will happen is that as I get distracted over days, weeks, months, sometimes years, is that it enables a drifting because I'm not paying attention to where I am in terms of my proximity to Christ. And you just begin that slow, drifting process. And the thing about a drift is it's so slow that you don't realize it's happening. You think you're fine 
you're actually moving, but it's movement at such a pace that it does not raise the alarms. It's, you know, to use the other cliche, it's the frog being boiled in the pot. The heat keeps coming up and the frog doesn't jump out because he just gets used to it until he's cooked frog. And the same thing, we keep drifting away. We keep drifting. And drifting. I had a, another guy said, yeah, it's like body surfing, he told me after the first service. He says, if you've ever done like boogie boarding or body surfing in the waves and there's a, a current going down the beach, you're so focused on catching the waves and everything and trying to ride the waves and suddenly you look up and you're 300 yards down the beach from where you start. And you're like, how did I get way down here? There's just this gradual drift that takes place. Uh, I'm reading a really, really interesting book right now. It's um, by a guy named Ed Welch. It's about addictions. It's called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And it's a really helpful book. I, um, you know, some of us uh, have been associated or had contact with uh, 12-step programs, AA, NA, all the different A's that there are. And, and, you know, there's some good things that people are helped in those programs. There's also some teaching in them that really is just contrary to the biblical understanding of, of human beings. And so you have to be really discerning in those kinds of programs. But this, I would just recommend this book, just as an aside, just a great book with a Christian perspective on what an addiction is, what it, what's really taking place spiritually. You know, is it a disease or is it something else? And so it's a great a great book on this. So if, if you struggle with addictions or you know someone who does, which probably means all of us are in one of those two categories, just a great book. But anyway, he talks about, um, he talks about how addiction happens, and it's a drift. It's a drift. You know, people don't have their first drink, and then suddenly they're gone. It's, it takes time over years through a lot of experiences. He tells one interesting story in here about a guy named Jim. I, I'm assuming that's a, a, a pseudonym. But uh, anyway, in this story, Jim has his first drink when he's 19, and he's in college. And then he has a couple drinks every year in college, but really doesn't drink too much. One time during college, he goes on a binge with some friends, but then that was it. Then he goes to the army, and he stops drinking. And then he gets out of the army and he, he starts working, gets a job, and, and then he gets an expense account and he travels. And now he's lonely and he's out on the road and there's nothing to do, so he goes to the bar and pretty soon that becomes a regular thing. And that's where that, those steps really start to gain speed until eventually it's now part of how he just deals with life. And get this, I, I, just listen for the drift in this. He writes, By the time our first child was born, I was drinking before dinner. Just one. Just one but I soon started filling it to the rim. Then I used a bigger glass. Finally, I found the biggest glass in the house and never used ice. But it was just one. I also started hiding bottles, mostly in the basement. No one could ever figure out why I spent so much time down there. And, and that's how it happens. It just is a drift. And, and you know, I use that example, but it's anything. It's not just substances. It's all kinds of things, you know. We drift slowly, uh, you know, in, in relationships, in a, a tired lonely, vulnerable, needy moment. We open up ourselves emotionally to a person that we shouldn't and a connection is made and that's the beginning of the, the drift into infidelity. Or we just get busy. We're so busy with our kids and busy driving people around and busy with our schedules that we, we don't have the time to really listen to God's Word. We don't have the time for a Bible study. We don't have the time for... for connecting to God's Word like we should. Or if we do have time, we're just so wiped out because we're so busy. That when the time comes, we're just like, I need to veg. And that's it. And, and we start to drift. And then, you know, well, I got hockey, and, and this is really important for the kids and their future, or I have some other sport. And so, well, we can't. Well, well for a couple months here, we're, we just will do hockey instead of church. 
And, you know, it, but we'll do something else with them. But we'll read the Bible at home. We'll have home church as a family. And, but then that kind of falls apart. And, you know, they just drift. That's how it happens. And then suddenly, it's like six years later, seven years later, Christ is kind of gone from the home, gone from our lives, and now the consequences of that are coming in. And then we say, how did I get here? You know, I, I used to be over there, and that spiritually in a good place, and now I'm here, and it's starting to take its toll on, on my relationships and my family and my health or whatever. And look at how did I get here? And it was a drift. There wasn't any one moment where you stood up and said, I'm chucking my faith. It didn't happen. It's just it's gradual drift. And then we suddenly take our bearings. We can't see land anymore. We don't even know where it is. So, for some of us, I would say, what's distracting you? Others of us have gone past simply a distraction to a drift. We've drifted away. And, and uh, you, you know, you're just wondering, how did I get here? You're looking at your life. Maybe you need to look at your life and realize it's not all good. That, yes, maybe you have an, an outward shell of Christianity and an outward look of Christianity, but inside there's no vibrant life of Christ because you've, because you've drifted. Or maybe you're here this morning because you realize you're drifted and that's why you came back to church. Because you're thinking, is there any way I can get back to where I need to be? And you're just wondering, can I get back? And, and I just want to encourage you and say, there's always a way back. It's time to start paying more careful attention to God's Word, to what God has said in His Word. Start focusing in on God's Word again. You know, the great thing is you may feel lost, you may feel adrift, you may be without your bearings, but the Lord knows right where you are. And if you'll just open His Word and cry out to Christ and say, I want to come back, I don't even know the way back. The great thing is God knows where you are and He can airlift you out and bring you back to Himself. What takes years and years to destroy through distraction and drifting, God can restore in a moment when we put our faith in Him. He can forgive and He can save. He's a God of salvation we've been singing about. Not just for in the sweet by and by, but even in our practical lives. He saves and He brings us back to Himself with all that attends that. So, are you distracted? Are you drifting? We need to pay more careful attention. And then we get the second consequence of being distracted. So if we're distracted from Christ, the first consequence is we can drift. The second consequence is if we go long enough holding God at arm's length, pushing God away, not listening to what He says, there will come a day of accountability where we will face catastrophic judgment. So the drifting can go so far that it can end in destruction. So if we... If we become distracted and we drift, we can someday be destroyed because we've discarded Christ. And that's what you get in verses 2 to 4. Let's just look there real quick. He says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just, just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? All right, so do you follow the argument there? If the message spoken by angels was binding, what's he talking about? talking about the Old Testament. If the Old Testament given to Moses by God, and there's this New Testament in, in Jewish tradition that as God gave the law to Moses, it was mediated by angels who were there and as part of the heavenly court as God came down on earth, on Mount Sinai. So the law of the Old Testament was given to Moses through angels. And if that law was binding and every violation received its punishment, I mean, think about the Old Testament law. If you stole something... There was a consequence. You had to pay back four times what you stole. If there was infidelity or murder, 
And people got stoned. It was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And God said to Israel, not just as individuals, but as a nation, if you as a nation turn away from me and worship idols and follow other foreign gods that did not save you from Egypt, I will, I will reject you as my people and, and bring judgment upon the whole nation. And it was serious. And so the argument goes, if that's how it was under the old covenant, and we have this greater salvation, how shall we escape, verse 3, if we ignore such a great salvation, this new salvation? And what's so great about this new salvation? Well, that's what the rest of the verse is about. He says, first of all, this salvation was first announced by the Lord. That the Jesus who is greater than the angels, aha, that's from last Sunday. Now we see that coming to play. Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels announced that covenant. Jesus announced this covenant. That God spoke this covenant, the gospel, by sending his own son to be a human being. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send out text messages. It wasn't an email blast. He came to earth as a human and said, Listen to me. I'm here so that you can hear me. Jesus came among us. And he didn't just preach salvation. He died on the cross to forgive our sins and secure our salvation. And if we ignore that, you think we're going to escape? But it's even more. Look, he says, It was first announced by the Lord, verse 3. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So we're talking about the apostles. Jesus gathered his apostles and disciples around him and, and this kind of bizarre bunch of misfits, you know, sort of the island of misfit toys, all these strange guys who just uh, had all these problems, but Jesus took them along and they saw his life, they saw his death, they saw his burial, they saw his resurrection, and they've confirmed what they saw. That's what the New Testament is. You wonder what the New Testament is? It's the writings, the, con- the confirmed writings of the people who were with Jesus. That's what the New Testament is. Uh, the Old Testament is God's law to Israel. The New Testament is those who are with Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. So, what we have here in the New Testament is the historical writings of eyewitnesses to Jesus. This was written in the first century. This was not written 400 years after Jesus as some legend evolved. We have the historical evidence. We have the textual evidence. There is archaeological evidence. This is a historical record, the Bible is. Christianity is not just my or your private, personal, religious feelings. It's a historical thing that happened that you can research and look into. It's great. No? You can use your mind, and you don't have to turn off your brain to follow Christ. You know, it's like... Prove it to me. Prove that God exists. Prove that Jesus is real. No. (laughs) You disprove it. How's that? You disprove it. It's here. You know? Archaeologically, historically, literarily, textually, it's here. The burden of proof is upon you to show that all this isn't true or isn't real. You know? This is it's historical. It's not just spirituality. It's not just private feelings. Whatever we feel about it or not, Jesus walked the earth. Historical fact. He preached. He died. And people saw him rise again and they preached that message in Jerusalem and the gospel exploded. You ever thought about that? How did Christianity explode when the guys stood in Jerusalem where he died and told everybody Jesus rose from the dead and everyone said, okay, right, and they all became Christians and thousands of Christians came around. How did that happen? It's a historically rooted book. But it's more than that. Not only did Jesus preach it, 
not only was it confirmed to us by the apostles and we have their word written down to follow, but it was also confirmed, verse 4, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So there is a supernatural confirmation, not just a historical confirmation. During the days of Jesus, He did miracles. Why? Well, to help people, but also to confirm that what He was saying was from God. And it wasn't just another religious guy out there spouting off new ideas. And when the apostles confirmed it, God gave them the ability to work miracles. And does God still perform miracles today? Absolutely. You know, especially through prayer. I think especially through prayer. God still heals people through prayer when He so wills it. Uh, I'd be happy to introduce you to some of them in our church after the service if you'd like. He, he does amazing things today. But you know, even that's not as exciting to me as the greatest miracle that God is doing today. There's a miracle God's doing today that just blows my mind. It's that people are coming to faith in Jesus by the thousands around the world. That's happening today. You see, if you're a Christian, you have already experienced in your life the greatest miracle you will ever experience this side of heaven. You've already experienced it. I don't care if you get healed from a disease someday or, or if you see someone rise from the dead. That's a minor miracle compared to the miracle you've already experienced as a Christian, which is your own salvation. It's the greatest miracle you'll ever experience this side of heaven. That God would take people who are His enemies and who don't believe in Him and change their hearts and bring them to faith. And, and that's happening. I mean, that's what keeps me excited is that I see God confirming His Word because these words are transforming people's lives. And I'm like, how can it be? It's just, just ink on paper. It's nothing. And yet it's full of life and power. And so this salvation announced by Christ Himself, God in human flesh, confirmed historically, archaeologically, textually by the apostles, confirmed by supernatural power as the, the gospel is living and active in the world today and you know, Christianity is spreading like a virus around the world. And it's not because the church is a really well-organized machine. Far from it. It's spreading through the power of the gospel, through the Holy Spirit. And if we ignore that salvation... Verse 3, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great, such a great salvation? So it's not just about distraction or even drifting. There is the real issue of facing destruction if we continue to neglect and hold God at arm's length. And I, I just want to encourage you to consider Christ this morning. Um, you know, we talked about things that keep you awake at night and anxieties you have. Well, this is, as a pastor, one of my little anxieties. Is I, I have this dread that there are people in the church that I know and I love who come to church and believe in God and are nice people, but they've never really come to faith in Christ. That you've never really done business with Christ. You've never really come to that place of saying, I am a sinner utterly lost without a Savior and turn by faith to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I trust You as my Savior. See, you believe in God, that's great, but that, that's not enough. God has spoken through His Son. His Son. And He is the object of faith. And so I, I would just plead with you today, right now, to consider 
giving your life to Christ, trusting in Christ. You know, what's holding you back? You know? You're like, well, I, I know it's a step of faith. Yeah, it's a step of faith. But guess what? Atheism's a step of faith. Can't prove that. You know? It, it's all a step of faith. Whatever position you take in life is a step of faith. The question is, what's your faith based on? It's based on Christ and on His Word. I would just encourage you to take that step of faith in Christ and trust Him. You know, what is holding you back? Really, what is it? You know, you have arguments, you have skepticisms. Really, is that really it? Or is it not just that fear we all have of letting ourselves go to God, wanting to be in control of our lives as we continue to drift and drift and drift? So would you put your faith in Christ today? This may sound funny. I hope you don't think I'm becoming a megalomaniac or something. But I, I stand before you today as an official ambassador from Jesus. I've been commissioned by Jesus to come to you and invite you into the kingdom of God. And I would just invite you to come to Christ and to put your faith in Him. He is inviting you through me. And the reason I say that is because it's through His Word, which I'm expounding. And so it's Christ Himself who opens His arm wide to sinners. So if you're distracted, time to pay attention. If you're drifting, it's time to pay attention. If you're discarding Christ, it's time to pay attention. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Let's pray.